what causes you fear? And I bet uh, you could probably quickly name something, but as you are thinking about that, let me just do a couple things. One is, if you're in grade six, seven, or eight, junior youth, you don't have to stay and listen to me. You can go. You can go. And, and let me tell you, it will be better. Now, uh, so grade six, seven, and eight, that's your opportunity there. Uh, let me introduce myself. I'm Jeff Bennett. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harbor, and for our Harbor Online community, welcome to you. So glad you're watching now at a later time, and hopefully we can connect with you this week as well. And to each one of you here in person for Fall Fest, welcome to you, and I hope I can greet you at the door, but if not, then just let me extend my greetings now. Uh, what causes you fear? For some of you, it might be heights. You know, the CN Tower Edgewalk is not on the list of things for you to do. Uh, for the others, it may be snakes, small spaces. It could be crowds. It could be fear of public speaking. Some of you are like, you will never see me on this stage doing anything in that regard. And so different things that we can fear. Now, let me, let me say some other things. You know, snakes is, is pretty standard one. But let me say this. How about the oven? How, how many people might have, or how would we process fear and our oven? Just think of it in these terms. Let's say you've opened up the oven door, you're bringing out some cookies, and a three-year-old is running towards you. What are you going to say? Whoa, stop. Be very afraid of the oven. What are you going to communicate to a three-year-old? They need to have some fear towards the oven. Now, if a 10-year-old comes to you and you're baking some cookies, what are you going to say to them? Hey, let's work together on this. You know, we'll be cautious, I'll assist you, but you can bake some cookies, and if an 18-year-old comes to you and says, hey, can I use the oven? You're like, just go right ahead. Bake cookies, bake whatever else you like, just enjoy yourself. Same with the lawnmower, right? When you're three years old, we don't say to three-year-olds, go out and play with the lawnmower, have fun. No, we're like, stay away. Be very afraid. When you're 10, maybe we assist, and parents, maybe when someone's 18, you're like, no need to have any fear. Just help yourself. Please, please go out there and use the lawnmower all that you like. Different, different things, we process fear differently. In some cases, in some of those, we might be saying to someone, you need to have more fear. And in another case, we might say, you need to have less fear. In fact, I would probably imagine if you would think you can look back to a conversation you had this week and the conversation went something like that where someone was talking about something and you said, oh, you need to have a little more fear about that. Or maybe it went the other way. Someone was talking about something and you said you need to have a little less fear. Again, if someone's driving without car insurance, you and they say, oh, it's no big deal, no problem. You would say, no, you need to have a little more fear about that. Right? You need to be a little more concerned about what could happen. And so if you just think back or you watch this week, you're going to be surprised how often that conversation comes up. Should it be more fear or should it be less fear? And now we come this morning and to think about our spiritual lives and what we're going to see, Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, he says that fear is also plays a key factor. It matters as we process our own spiritual lives. That, that, the, that the amount of fear we have is very important as we seek to live out our lives and in our relationship with God. And what we started to talk about two weeks ago, and what we'll see again today, is Peter's premise is this. Here's his premise. That life apart from God is empty. 
that life apart from God is meaningless. It's insignificant. That life apart from God, it's like we're always trying to fill it up with something, but out the bottom, it's always emptying out. The life apart from God is emptiness, and so Peter is coming and giving us the opposite, and he's saying, here's what leads to a full life. Here's how you have a full life. If life apart from God is emptiness, then here's the opposite. Here's the full life, and he's laying out some principles for us that lead to a full life. And where we come today is the idea of fear, and he's going to try to integrate our thinking about fear in our spiritual lives and how that leads to a full life. So let me show it to you in the scriptures. It's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, we're, gonna, we're going to start with. And if you're new to Harbor, what we usually do at Harbor is we just choose a passage of scripture and we just slowly walk our way through it. And that's what we've been doing over the fall. We've started in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and we've worked our way now, now, down now to verse 17. If you want to know what comes next week, you can just read ahead and see what is coming. And this way, we're just letting the Word of God speak to us. But we're in this section now where Peter has talked about empty lives. You're going to see that this morning. And we're countering it with the full life. And today's topic that Peter wants to address for us in regards to a full life is the idea of fear. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, let me read it for you what he says. Since you call on a father who judges every person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And so the second phrase there gives us Peter's main idea. Live out your time. How should we live our lives? Well, one is being lived as foreigners, and this has been a common theme. This is not your home. You're an exile. Don't put down roots here. You're like a resident alien. But as you operate that way, how are we to live in reverent fear? Now, two weeks ago, Peter's first point was this. How do you live a full life? Be holy like God. Be holy. God is holy, and therefore we should be holy. And now how do we begin to live out a holy life? We begin to live it out in reverent fear of God. Peter believes that one of the motivations for us to live our lives well is a fear of God. Paul said the same thing in 2 Corinthians 7.1. You could reference it later. Paul says these words, We perfect our holiness out of a reverence for God. And so Peter is looking in, and these believers, and, and he's writing probably in modern day terms, there'd be northwestern Turkey, to churches that he started, uh, that he helped start, and to Christians there. And he's saying, if you want to live a full life, then here you'll see on the side screen, here's Peter's big picture idea be fearful of God. This provides the motivation to live right, that we are fearful of God. Now, even as I say that, and we've talked about other fears this morning, for some of you, this this morning may be, oh, is this where I need to have more fear? Or could it be that I need to have less fear? We've learned that in so many areas, it can go both ways. And so what we're going to see this morning, let me just give you the outline. If this is the idea, we live a full life by having a fear of God, then what Peter's going to do in verse 17 is talk about a healthy fear. 
what is actually the healthy fear of God. We could say this way, how to fear God rightly. That's what we're going to see in verse 17. Peter is going to explain that. And then also in verse 17, he's going to give us the reason why. Why should we fear God rightly? Why should we have a healthy fear of God? And so that's going to get covered in verse 17. But then this is really important. Then in verse 18 and 19, then Peter comes and, he, and he's going to talk about what an unhealthy fear of God is. So over here, it's like, here's the right fear of God. Here's a healthy fear of God. And then over here, he's going to say, here's the wrong fear of God. Or here's the unhealthy fear of God. And, and it's, it's important to understand both of those. In fact, I had a friend text me about six weeks ago, and his words were something like this. He said something to the degree of, I've always felt that God hates me, and he will condemn me. So now what would I respond to that? How would I say? And that's very hard to respond to in a text message. I appreciated the honesty, the vulnerability, the insightfulness of that. But in many ways, this, what we'll cover today, here's the right fear of God, the healthy fear of God. Here's why you need to fear. And then here's the unhealthy fear of God. This whole message, it wasn't planned that way, but would be a helpful answer to his question. So let's look then first at what is the healthy fear of God. Look how Peter starts in verse 17. Since you call on a father. Let's just pause there. Peter is saying that if you're in Christ, that if you're a follower of Jesus, that means God is your father. Just earlier, he had talked about how God has adopted us into his family. We're a child of God. Throughout this whole chapter, Peter has said such magnificent things as this. God chose you. He called you. He's given you a new birth. He's lavished his grace upon you. He's loved you and he's accepted you. Peter, just after verse after verse after verse, is saying to the Christians he's writing to, God is your father. He loves you. He's adopted. He's welcomed you in. And these are such monumental things that he wants them to hear because you remember they're being persecuted. They're being maligned and ridiculed and made fun of. And Peter wants them to have assurance. He wants them to have security that God has loved them and adopted them, that he's their father, and there's nothing they can do to lose their standing with him. No matter how much persecution comes, it's like Peter's saying, no, God loves you. He's your father. He's adopted you. Hang on to that. But even as I say that, you maybe know the tension of that. When the only side of God we emphasize is that God, and everything I just said is totally true. Peter's covered that, that he's, that he's the father, that he loves us, that he accepts us, that we can be secure in him. It can lower our general view of God. It can lead to sort of a domesticated view of God, that, that we treat him lightly, that we trivialize God. You know, think of the Old Testament people of God. They feared to even say the name of God out loud. His name was so holy, they did not even want to pronounce it with their lips. And compare that to where we have arrived today in our culture. The disregard and the dishonor, the disrespect, the disdain, and the scorn that goes towards who God is and his name. And I have to be careful with this illustration, but at times we think of God like a senile old man. You know, that we just enter his presence whenever we want. He's always nice 
And if we ask nicely, he'll give us treats for whatever we're looking for. He's really just a pushover. He's oblivious to our lives and really powerless to do anything. And we remind ourselves that that's not the God that is revealed in Scripture. When we only elevate the fatherly side of God and not the other side of God, we're left with a God that we've created in our own image. And you think, why would we create God in our own image? Well, because it's nice to have a God like that. You can control him and you can manage him, but that's not the God of Scripture. Here's a couple of verses from the Old Testament. You may remember a character named Samson. At one point, Samson's father, Manoah, has a man visit him. It turns out to be an angel, but they don't know it. But as they light a burnt offering, the angel goes up in the fire, up back up to the heavens. And Manoah sees that happening. And then you'll see on the side screens what he says to his wife. Here's what he says. You'll see it come up. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. There's Manoah, and he realizes that he has been in the presence of God. And he looks at his wife, and he says, we're doomed to die. Now, we may look in on that and think, oh, you know, Manoah, he's an Old Testament guy. You know, not very sophisticated. Didn't really understand God. You know, we're, we live in the modern age. We've got technology. Manoah's uninformed. He doesn't really understand God. He's got this backwards idea of God. And you may wonder where Manoah ever got this idea from. Let me show you where he got it from. It's the next verse on the side screens, Exodus 33, verse 20. And here's what God says. God says this to Moses, You cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. God, Moses had asked God, God, I want to see your face. And God said, Moses, no one can see my face because if you see my face, you shall not live. Where did, this, where did Manoah get this idea from? He got it from God himself. And we sort of look at that verse on the side screens and think, I think God was misquoted there. I don't think that's the God that we understand. No, this is our God. And this is what Peter is saying. Live your lives in reverent fear of this God. Have a sense of awe and respect for the majesty of God. And we would realize today at times how flippant and cavalier, how casual we can be towards God. And yes, Peter has said God is our father. He's our Abba father, our daddy. We can always come into his presence and have this personal intimacy with him, but we always maintain this healthy respect for him this high regard, this adoration of who God is, that we should uphold him and honor and revere him to live our lives in holy fear of him. I was remembering a time this summer, I think it was about 11, 11.30 at night, and there was probably the largest thunderclap I have heard in a long time. We just live right over this way, over by Farm Boy there, so I don't know how it was where you live, but for us, it was just amazingly loud, and the light flickers, the lights flicked at the same time, and I sort of jumped, I was asleep, I jumped out of bed, I yelled a little bit, everyone made fun of me, but it was a loud thunderclap. And, uh, and I was sort of, I, again, it was surprised, probably the loudest I've heard in a long time. Now, some of you maybe have lived in a place or visited a place 
where that just doesn't happen once. I've only had this once in my life where, where it feels like the whole thunderstorm has descended upon you, maybe in a tropical rainforest, where, where it is thunder and lightning and wind and storm, and it's just like it is all on top of you, and it goes on for hours and hours. And in those moments, you hold in high regard the storm, you, you sort of tremble as you hear the lightning and the thunder and the wind and the waves. Or not, no waves, but the wind. Um, I guess if you're by the shore, there'd be waves. And, and you get that sense of the magnitude of the storm in that moment. I, I think this is a really good illustration of what Peter is trying to get at when he says, have a reverent fear towards God. You know, sometimes, and I've used this illustration, we think we can illustrate this by thinking of Niagara Falls, that, that you go to Niagara Falls and you see the, the power of the water falling over and, and you hold great regard and awe with all the water coming over and that's all true. I think why the storm illustration is slightly better is because when you're at the Niagara Falls, you have a little more control. You know, you can stand back on the walkway or get as close or as far away as you want. But when you're in the storm you realize that you don't have much control. It's just so much bigger and more powerful than you, and you stand in awe of it. You'll see this quote come up. It's from Jen Wilkin. Here's how she brings this together. She says, When we fear God rightly, we recognize Him for who He truly is, a God of no limits, utterly unlike anything or anyone. I love how she brings that together. A God of no limits that we cannot manage, that we cannot control, and then utterly unlike, totally holy, totally set apart. And this is what Peter is saying should motivate the Christian life. You think of Isaiah, he comes into the presence of God and he sees God for who he is and he says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. He sees God for who he is and he has this reverent fear. Think of what David wrote in Psalm 115, verse three, God is in the heavens and he does what he pleases. It's this enormously high view of God. We live our lives in reverent fear of him. But Peter also then, if this then, this is the healthy fear of God, recognizing for him for who he is and not lowering who he is, then Peter also in these verses says, here's why we should fear God, why we should live this out. And it was just the first half of the verse. It says it right there. You have this father, look at the next phrase, who judges each person's work impartially. And so now you see Peter bringing two characteristics of God together. He's a father and he's a judge and he judges each person's work impartially. You know, it, it's been a while since I've been a student at school, but the moment I always used to, did not like, is when the teacher would stand in front of the class and say, now we're going to do a group project you know, no one likes group projects. I have no idea. Some teacher can correct me afterwards the educational value of them. I don't think there is any. But here's what you know. 
When, when the teacher says you're going to do a group project, if you're like a slacker in school, right? Let me just say this. If you don't like to study and work hard, you know your strategy, right? You're like, I got to get in a group with some smart people. Where are they? You're hoping you're sitting beside me. You're like, let's pair up here. Let's be in the same group, right? It's a wonderful strategy. Kids, if you don't know that strategy, it works really well. Pair up with the smart people. Now, if you're on the smart people, right? If you work hard, then here's what you're thinking. We got to keep the slackers out of this group here, right? We got to keep them out. No, no, you're looking around the smart people. No, we're going to be the group because here's what you know. Here's what you know, right? You're all getting the same grade, but you're all not doing the same amount of work, right? And so you know it's not going to be, you know it's not going to be totally fair. There's going to be some bias in there and you're trying to make it work to your advantage. This happens at work too. You ever been like in a work meeting and your boss comes in and she says, team, you've done a great job. Just want to thank you for that. And you're like, you know, I like my boss. She's encouraging. She sees that we did a great job. She wants to thank us. But here's what you're thinking. You have no idea what happened down here. You have no idea. You know, there were some of us that really did work hard, but the two of them, they did everything to, to, to disrupt this problem, right? And you're like, thanks for the encouragement, but you have no idea how all this played out down here. And, and it's not a totally a fair judgment. We know that happens in all sorts of environments. But here's what Peter says. Look at what he says. He says, God who judges each person's work impartially. God's not going to miss it like we think a teacher will or a boss will. He will not be off. His judgment will be accurate. No factors will influence him, no bias. He has no lack of information and no outside influences will change his judgment. And what does Peter say? He's evaluating our works. He's seeing sort of how we have lived as those who are in Christ. And this is what Peter's saying. This should motivate you to live well, knowing that God is looking down and can see the nature of our works. Now, there is a little bit of debate in this. When does the judgment come? You know, is it now or is it later? And I think it's probably both. But if you're thinking, looking in on this, yeah, when does it come? Can I avoid it? You know, how do I, how, is there an escape clause? How can I get around this? You've really sort of missed the point of it. There, there is, God, what Peter is reminding us to motivate us is, is that one day God is going to take account of our works and accurately judge them. Just think for a moment of parenting. And as a parent, you know that you you operate in both of these realms. You operate as a father, as a mother, operate, uh, giving unconditional love and acceptance, but also you know there's the other side of things, which would be the judge side or the true side, whereas parents, you're to give some training and instruction and correction and discipline. In fact, if we look in and we see a parent only doing one or the other, or in this case, just doing the love side and never doing the judge or the truth, training and correction, discipline side, we think that's not much of a parent, right? We look down on them as a parent. We, we want to say to parents, look, some assembly required. It's like a key of furniture. You have to put some work in. You have to help build up kids. Now, again, that doesn't always guarantee the results, but we know good parents are investing in training, instruction, correction, and discipline. They're using a judging role. It's the same with God. 
He wants to make his children holy. He wants to develop us. And so he is looking down and evaluating. And then in all sorts of different ways, offering training and instruction and correction and discipline to move us forward in our spiritual journey. So that's the healthy fear of God. The healthy fear of God is that we live in reverent fear of him, remembering who he is in his awesomeness like the storm we cannot control, and we mark that he is a judge. He is looking at all that we are doing. But yet we still have this unhealthy fear. And you see, some of you might already be getting there. You can feel the weight of these first two points. The greater we elevate God, the weightier that we can feel. Now, Peter is not trying to diminish God in these passages. He's not trying to lower him to make us feel better. In fact, he's raising who God is. And so the higher you get God, then we start down a road and you can feel it come upon you. It's weighty. I'm not holy. I'm not able to meet this standard. I fear God. I fear his judgment. I fear that the storm of all God is will fall on me. And so then that's where Peter comes next to help save us from this unhealthy, what could be, what, what could be a wrong fear of God. Look down to verses 18 and 19. These are so good. Let me read it all for you, and then I'll, we can work our way through it. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So the last two words in verse 17, live in reverent fear. But now Peter comes and he says, for you know. Peter, what do we know? What do you want us to know as we seek to live out our lives? Well, look down. The key phrase is there, you were redeemed. You were redeemed. Key idea. So Peter, in the middle is reverent fear. On one side is God's your father. On the other side, uh, we are redeemed. Peter is bookending the idea of fear with these two great ideas. So what does it mean that we were redeemed? What does that mean? Well, it means, to redeem means to buy back, to, to purchase, to ransom something. It means that we were stuck in our sin over here, and God had to pay a price to ransom us, to buy us back, to redeem us. And what were we redeemed from? It says right there. We've talked about it already. From the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. So here's the picture of the human condition Peter's giving us. We had all at one point, we're in emptiness. We're trying to fill our lives with something. It just keeps ending up in emptiness. And then that emptiness is, is what all we've ever known passed down from our ancestors. It's the emptiness of sin. We're just stuck in sin. Sin has kept us in bondage and in slavery. And sin is exacting a debt and a price that needs to be paid to get us out of that. And God comes along now to rescue a human soul out of this bondage, out of this emptiness, out of this slavery. And you might ask, well, how much is that going to cost? 
That's probably expensive to rescue a human soul out of that. What's the cost? Well, Peter says, you were not redeemed with perishable things such as silver or gold. So a eternal soul cannot be rescued by something finite, by just silver or gold. In fact, we could say it this way. Amass all the silver and gold in the entire world, bring it all together, and it would not be enough to purchase one human soul, to redeem one soul out of the bondage and the slavery of sin. So then what is the price? What could ever be offered to ransom, to buy back one human soul? We see that in the second half of the verse. What are we redeemed with? The precious blood of Christ. Peter here now points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. And he's saying when Jesus died on that cross, when his precious blood was shed, that was the payment. That was the payment that rescued us, that paid for the ransom, that redeemed us, that brought us back to God. And look at the last phrase. It's so good. A lamb without blemish or defect. It's a picture of Jesus. Just a little lamb. Just a little lamb. So precious. Not one thing wrong with him. Jesus never sinned once. Willingly went to the cross so that we might be redeemed by his precious blood, so that we are brought back. And so this is what Peter is trying to help us understand. He's saying, live in reverent fear, but remember that you've been redeemed. You've been bought back. In some ways, he's saying, live in reverent fear, but because you've been redeemed, you have nothing to fear. You've been redeemed. You've been purchased. Let me illustrate it this way. Think back to the storm again, the storm of God's holiness, the storm of God's justice, the storm of God's righteousness, all he is. That's who God is. And the storm now, we feel the weight of it, we see the magnitude of it, we're in awe of it, and we feel it coming down upon us. Now in that moment, what matters is, where are you standing? But just for sake of illustration, let's say that in the moment you see the storm approaching, you are actually on a rock face. You're climbing, and you're up quite a bit, and you've got no harness, you've got no security, and there you are climbing, and now you see this storm barreling down upon you. And you realize the storm with the lightning, the thunder, the wind, the rain, it's too much for you. It will overwhelm you. You're in a vulnerable position. This is the picture that Peter has painted when he's saying, live your life in reverent fear. And we feel this. But then in that moment, what do we do? What do we do? That's who God is. Well, on the rock face, as you look around, then to your left, you notice a, a little opening, a little hole. And you hadn't really seen it before, but you're quite desperate now, so you're looking for anything. And it's a little hole, and then as you look again, it seems to be a little bit bigger than you realize. And so you make your way over there, and as you sort of peer in, you realize, yeah, it's about the size of your body on the outside, but then inside, there's a little more space as well. And so you sort of hoist yourself up. You know how you get your waist in first and sort of tumble in afterwards, and you fall into this cave 
in the rock face. And as you fall in there, you sit back and your back is up against the wall and you can now look out through the opening as the storm comes and passes by. And what you had feared so much in the storm, you now can sit there in awe and see the storm, but be totally safe from it. This is what Peter is helping us understand here. It's the justice and the holiness, the power, the wrath and the judgment of God. But yet, God has provided Jesus as our refuge, as a cage, as a cave. And we can make our way into Jesus. We can run into him and be safe. And yes, the storm, we may fear and tremble and hold it in reverence, but we would never cower from it because we know that we are safe. Christ has spilled his precious blood to redeem us. And this is what Peter wants his readers to understand. He's saying, live out your lives in reverent fear. Hold God in great awe, but never fear Never fear that the storm might be too much for you because Christ has provided a refuge and you can be safe in that. Let's not diminish who God is, but let's just exalt all that Christ has done for us. So let me just offer this morning an opportunity. If this morning you have realized the greatness of the storm of God, his justice, his holiness, his power, all that he is, and you would tremble to think that you would stand before this God, would you run into this morning the refuge of Christ? Would you take cover in him? If this morning you have been struck by the reality of your sin, may you run and how holy God is and you are fearful, may you turn from your sin and may you trust in Christ. If this morning you would admit that you have a, you've lived an empty life apart from God and is trapped in the bondage of sin, this morning you know that Christ has paid an immense price, his own life to redeem you, to buy you back. He gave his precious blood so that you might have life and life to the full. And so wouldn't this morning you run into what he offers? We see who God is, but we see who Christ is. And wouldn't you, this in the quietness of your heart, just say, Jesus, I turn from my sin and I trust in Jesus that he, what he paid on the cross is enough to purchase me, to buy me back. That's what Jesus would say to those who have never trusted in him. But then for the rest of us who have already run into the cave, who have no Jesus's redemption and cover, what Peter would say is meditate on that. Know the cost of what it costs to have you redeemed and let it motivate you to pursue holiness. Let it motivate you to continue to pursue God and to live right. You'll see this last quote on the side screens by MacDonald from one of his uh, commentary of the whole Bible. Here's what he writes. Reason back from the greatness of the sacrifice to the greatness of the sin. 
then determined to be done forever with that which costs God's son his life. So reason back, where do we start with? The greatness of the sacrifice. The precious lamb of God had to spill his blood for us. What does that teach us? It teaches us the greatness of sin. And so therefore, what should it motivate us as those who are in Christ, those who have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of our sins? It should motivate us to be done with sin, to never want to return to it. On this note, let me offer one final illustration. It's a popular illustration. I think it originated with John Piper. It's the story of an 18-year-old girl. And she's the only child, and she goes out one night and does not return home. And her parents are worried. They spend a sleepless night trying to locate her and have no luck. And then in the morning, come to, re- come to receive at their front door a ransom note. She has been kidnapped and being held hostage and they are demanded to bring a certain amount of money, an overwhelming amount of money, to have her set free. Well, the parents see that and feel like, for sake of illustration, have no other choice but to bring that money together to try to collect it for her. And so they do all they can they mortgage their house, they, they get a second mortgage, they sell everything they have, their cars, their furnitures, even take off their wedding rings, anything they can do to collect the ransom amount because they love their daughter so much. And then at the appointed time, they meet on a bridge. The plan is that they'll leave the ransom in the middle of the bridge. Once it's there, their daughter will walk across uh, and then pass the money be reunited with their parents, they will leave, and then the hostage takers can take the money and be on their way. Well, the parents do their first part. They leave the money there in the middle of the bridge. But then as their daughter approaches, rather than walk past the money, she picks up the money bag. And rather than to walk towards her parents, she turns around and walks back to her hostage taker. And she almost has a little bit of jump in her step now. When she returns to her hostage taker, she gives him a kiss on the cheek and they exchange a hug and they look at all the money they've just got and they're laughing. And then she turns around and looks back across the bridge at her parents and she says, suckers, suckers. There's this young daughter who's taken everything she has from her parents for her boyfriend and off they go. Now what Peter is reminding us, for those who are in Christ, is never treat our Father like that. Never treat the Son Jesus like that. He sacrificed everything so that we could be free. Don't treat our God like that. Don't treat Jesus like that. Don't just turn our back and walk away on him. And so that's the motivation. That's what Peter is saying. He's trying to help us understand all that Christ has done for us and the gravity of that so we will live right. Let me say one other thing, and it can almost undermine the illustration, but it's so good. But with our God, even when we do that, 
when we turn back around, he's still our father. He still loves us and he still accepts us. And if we would admit it, we all have done that multiple times. But the relationship is never severed. So we need not fear. Live in reverent fear of God that he's done all of this for us, but also do not fear. God has adopted us into his presence. That's the tension we live in. Let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, we were in emptiness, bondage to sin, and could never pay our way out. Our good works would never amount to anything but you spilled your precious blood to rescue us out. We have been redeemed. We've been set free. We are accepted and loved by you, and we need fear nothing. For the person here today, Lord, that does not know that, oh, may they run to you. May they take refuge in you. Uh, May they know all the shelter that you provide in the midst of the storm. God, may they know that they have nothing to fear in Christ. And then, God, for all of us that know that, that have experienced that, God, we praise you for that. And, God, we're reminded today of the great price that you paid to redeem us, to rescue us. And so, God, may you help us to live in reverent fear, in awe, and hold you in such high regard for what Christ did for us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen and amen. Well, the uh, Fall Fest is happening out there. If you did not sign up, that's okay. You didn't need to. There's lots of food. There's lots of activities for everyone. Please stay and enjoy. Let me also give this encouragement. We've got a lot of new people around Harbor. I hope today when you get in your car and leave, you'll be able to say you met someone new. You had a wonderful conversation with someone you did not know. Just simply ask someone, how long have you been coming to Harbor? Very safe question. You're going to have a wonderful conversation. And as you head out uh, this week, know that you're going to encounter people who need to hear this good news. And so we always end our service with four words. It reminds us that we've gathered to go. We have a mission. And so Harbor we are sent.